This is Tripwire Week in Review for week ending March 17th, 2023. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Henry, Head of Searing Advisory Services. And joining us is one of our bank experts, Managing Director, Matt Anderson. This week, turbulence in the bank sector continued with the latest news of the biggest U.S. banks depositing $30 billion in First Republic. While investors sift through the fallout from Silicon Valley and Signature, and overseas, Credit Suisse gets a supply of liquidity from the Swiss National Bank. And in economic data, a mixed bag from inflation, retail sales, unemployment, and manufacturing. Manus, we've got a lot of questions. We're going to try to cover it in our usual time. And thankfully, Matt's here to help us break a lot of it down. But one of the key questions you've heard a lot of talk about is around the liquidity positions of banks, especially the regionals. Clearly, it was a brutal week. Uh, Martha, Lani, and I have been speaking about for several months, kind of our surprise that nothing has broken to date. That when you have something happening over the last nine months, like we've had, which has been um, really big shifts in oil prices, really big increases in interest rates, risk premium changes changing so frequently. I think we've been a little bit astonished that a hedge fund, a PE firm, a bank hasn't been caught on the wrong side of a bet somewhere that would cause a loss of confidence in the financial markets. We really went from June with that first CPI report until this week or late last week before we had an event that really shook the market. It finally happened with Silicon Valley Bank and then it spilled over uh, certainly into signature and it threatened to topple others as well. We could see that some bank share prices were off 70 or 80% from their peak uh, over the last couple of days. So we said one of the big things we were watching was the loss of trust, that exogenous shock to the marketplace that would make people wonder, where are people counterparties? Where do they have interest rate caps that they may not be able to honor? Where are runs on deposits happening? Where are mark-to-market losses waiting to be disclosed, right? And once that trust leaves, or once those questions arise about how creditworthy is my counterparty, that's when things really start to dry up. And we're going to talk a lot more today about what's happening with liquidity in the commercial real estate market. But I just have to tell you, Martha, all those other questions I just mentioned, glad we have Matt here to cover them today because I'm definitely way over my skis when it comes to things like uh, capital ratios, bank liquidity, and so forth. So we're going to go through all of that today, but uh, a very rough week. I think it's rough in terms of, you know, going into this week, we were worried about tech layoffs and giving back space. Now we have to worry about bank layoffs and banks giving back space as they try to squirrel away deposits and earnings and so forth. Um, We do have to worry about how much banks will pull back from lending. We're going to get into that a lot more over the next hour. And all of that feeds into the lubrication of the economy. When they have layoffs, when they close branches, when they reduce office footprints, and when they slow lending, that all filters through the economy. And that is what we really have to worry about for the next three to six months. So, man, it's a couple of thoughts here, and I'll let Matt jump in on some of the technical stuff. I Just from a big picture perspective, I feel like, you know, you you highlighted that we've been talking for the last several months about, you know, the fact that nothing has broken yet, even in spite of all of the rapid increases of interest rates and the tech layoffs and everything else. This was a pretty big shoe for the first one to drop. Um, I definitely think the government stepped in you know, through a consortium of, you know, the FDIC, Treasury Department, Federal Reserve, et cetera, and came up with a solution to stop this from becoming a more systemic problem. But I think from my perspective, if you look at this, you know, maybe a little bit farther removed and say, going back to COVID, you know, the government shut shut everything down, people stayed home, PPP loans were introduced, you had a lot of people taking PPP loans, there was a ton of fraud and things that, you know, have been exposed with that effort. You get through that period, the economy opens back up, 
you know, we start sending out stimulus checks and people are spending money like crazy, then inflation happens. The airlines have had a couple of issues over the last couple of months where they've had to basically shut down operations for Southwest and a few others based on legacy antiquated systems and processes that are in place there. And then now you have some of these banks where, you know, super high levels of concentration, some risky bets, some, you know, unfortunate interest rate hikes where they've kind of gotten squeezed, you know, maybe unbeknownst to them themselves of what that risk was. And it just, for somebody that's not well-versed in the banking space in terms of like daily operations, it just makes me wonder, like, from a capitalist perspective in the U.S., a lot of our systems are antiquated. A lot of our infrastructure, a lot of our technology, a lot of our stuff is, you know, when you peel the curtain back, it doesn't take a whole lot for things to like literally just break. And so I think it's it's great. And that's going to kind of talk us through some of the stop gaps that we have in place with the banking system and things that have, you know, helped prevent some mass chaos. You know, but I think if you look at this objectively, you know, we have a lot of stuff in the U.S. right now that appears to be working fine until it's not. And when it's not, there's a lot of downstream implications that I think we're starting to realize. One last thing I wanted to point out, I think we'll talk about throughout this today is, you know, the social media impact on this, you know, just going forward when we talk about bank runs or we talk about other types of runs, the ability for information to be disseminated at a scale and pace that's never before been seen is really, really dramatic. And I think it, it, has benefits on the positive side in some instances, but in this instance, it's obviously something that can get very scary very quickly. Yeah, I, I don't often get into, you know, kind of the political or throwing blame or shade at certain things, but I'm really torn on a couple of things here. One thing I'm not torn about is that if you've been on a board of a failed bank, just like there's a no-fly list, there should be a no-board list. Right. There should be a guy at a bank that looks like the TSA guy that if you are a board member on a failed bank and you get to the door, right, things start flashing and say, no, sorry, you're on the no board list. You can't you can't come through our doors here. And if you have two failed board seats, right, if you had one in the last crisis and one now, you know, I, I don't know what that is. You can't even take a train anymore. You got to take a Greyhound bus. Right. There, there's not even a no board. There's two no boards on you. But the bigger issue for me is, on the one hand, all these companies that are making things like healthcare tools or AI startups or a new fintech, where the people have no financial sophistication at the worker level, right? When something like this happens, you don't want to see them lose their jobs because of something that was not related to their performance or behavior. So to the extent that the bank came in and bailed out people and kept good companies from going under, that's great. However, these VCs are not stupid people, right? We had VCs on the board of Silicon Valley Bank. There should have been an adult in the room who was saying, right, this asset liability match is not working here. And there should have been adults on the room at these smaller companies you know, risk management is not that costly and not that hard to implement if you have a couple savvy board members, right? They should have known you shouldn't have $300 million in cash at one FDIC registered banks, right? As a VC guy, part of your job is growing and nurturing a company from somebody who doesn't know what to do to being a midsize or large company. And to that extent, this feels a little bit like you know, the Mitt Romney bailout, right? We we preserve the equity and Mitt Romney may not have anything to do with this. It was kind of an expression I'm using, but by preserving and saving these VC, these, these startups, we basically preserved VC equity. And I have to say that they had a lot to do with lack of controls, lack of risk management and allowing all the eggs to be put in one basket. I'm sorry. You know, that's, uh, you know, that that's a strong opinion of mine. Yeah, I won't weigh in on the, uh, you know, political dimension, but you both touched on a couple really key aspects, which are front and center for all of us and have been for a long time. And we, and we just got a, a big reminder. Uh, you were talking about liquidity, Manus. That really, at the end of the day, liquidity is the lifeblood of the economy. And if there is no liquidity, you have no circulation 
uh, everything's going to grind to a halt. That is what uh, what we learned in the last cycle. Um, if you think back when Lehman Brothers went down in September of uh, 2008, in a very short time frame, basically within hours, um, liquidity started to dry up. And it, it got to the point where even the biggest players really didn't trust each other. And the whole payment system it functioned, but kind of barely. There was a lot of concern. If I you know, pay this bill over here, will my other bill over here get paid? And there just really was a, a very significant and deep lack of confidence among the biggest players in the system. Uh, that really persisted for about six months until stress testing, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, stress testing came out in April of 2009. That was called SCAP back then. Now it's called CCAR. And of course, uh, nobody expected much from it. But actually, um, literally the day that it came out, some of the big banks raised money. And with it, by the end of that week, they all had raised fresh capital. And that really wasn't like, you know, problem was fixed at that point, but that was the beginning of the thaw in, um, you know, liquidity, which had totally frozen up until that point. So I think that's a big lesson that we all learned and, and uh, definitely the officials at the Fed learned that in a big way. Going back to Lehman, at the time, they didn't expect it to have the broad impact that it ended up having. They thought it would be an isolated incident and Lehman could be allowed to fail and it wouldn't bring the whole system down. And um, once they realized that they were wrong and that the whole system was crumbling, you know, then they stepped in with uh, massive amounts of liquidity. I think that explains why uh, when COVID hit, Lonnie, you were mentioning that when COVID hit, they were really fast at, at rolling out all sorts of programs to keep liquidity af afloat including probably, you know, maybe things that weren't absolutely necessary. But I think the feeling among the regulators at the time was better to err on the side of, you know, rolling out too much uh, as opposed to not enough and then, you know, feel like you um, hadn't done enough. Uh, in some ways, that explains why they moved, uh, you know, quickly in the last week. Having said that, they probably could have moved even faster with Silicon Valley Bank in particular. By our calculations, there's really no reason that Signature Bank had to fail, except that it was literally panic button that everybody was hitting. Deposit outflow that had already started turned into an avalanche, and that's really why they uh, why they had to step in and, and close Signature. And that also explains why they have been active in rolling out uh, some extra programs and to create extra liquidity and a sense of liquidity. Because actually, if you think about it, maybe more than the actual liquidity itself is, uh, back to your point, Manus, like instilling confidence in the system. Once you lose confidence in the system, you know, the game is over. So um, so they're trying to stay ahead of that one. And I wouldn't be, we can talk about it some more. I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if we see more programs rolled out um, in the not too distant future. I did want you to dive a little bit into Signature Bank specifically, they had uh, a pretty good footprint here in New York City area, specifically around commercial real estate. They did, yeah. We just put out a short piece the other day and we, we took a deeper dive into what we thought their um, footprint was using their deposit base as a proxy for where their loans are. And sure enough, you know, the bulk of their portfolio was in, by our estimates, was in New York City or in the New York Metro. They were a major lender in uh, the New York Metro. By our estimates, the second biggest bank lender in the New York Metro and also accounting for 12% of bank lending and 5% of total lending if you include securitized lending as well, like the CMBS and agencies. So that's a pretty significant figure for one firm, especially a $100 billion bank. It, the commercial real estate was a major focus and within their portfolio multifamily was the single biggest portion but nearly as big in commercial can i ask a quick question of that matt i see that about 90 percent of signatures deposits you know about 79 or 80 billion were not fdic insured as of december that was according to some regulatory filings is that a ratio that's standard for banks that size you know i know they had also had 
a pretty large at one point holding of crypto. And so it seems like maybe the market associated them still being a major player in the crypto space. So what's what's your perspective on those two items? So the crypto was what really was the Achilles heel for Signature because crypto assets have ended up being a fairly decent sized uh, portion of their uh, deposit base. I believe it was about a quarter of their deposit base was crypto. One thing that we just recently learned is that if crypto asset prices decline, Bitcoin is down more than seventy uh, percent over the last you know year plus. Uh, if those values decline, then your deposits are going to be shrinking. So it had the effect of even though those deposits weren't walking out the door, it had the same impact as you know a deposit outflow. Shouldn't have been rocket science to figure out that as those cryptocurrency values were declining that was gonna have an impact, especially if you had a big exposure to that as your deposit base. In terms of you know uninsured balances, I mean, the $250,000 limit on deposit insurance, you know, that's gonna, I don't, I don't think Signature was necessarily all that unique in having a lot of deposits that went well above that 250,000 mark. I think most banks out there uh, probably do have a lot of accounts that have uh, large balances, but it's really the uh, that uh, if it was like deposit outflow as those crypto deposits were shrinking in value. That, of course, that combined with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank contributed to the panic, and then there really was a mass exodus from uh, from signatures. So the the regulators had to step in again and shut it down. I, I have a thesis here, and I want you to react to it. My thesis is that, you know, what was happening to Signature was spilling over to First Republic. People were taking out their deposits. There was basically a second run on the bank. And what we found today was, I think it was 30 banks got together and traded them uninsured deposits to help shore up their capital base. And First Republic now, at least for the moment, seems out of the woods. Their stock is up 20% on Thursday. My thesis is this, that this is not a forgotten 10 days, that anybody out there with uninsured deposits for banks that are small are in the process right now of taking their deposits out, moving them to one of the big four or maybe the one of the big 10 or something like that. And the next guys to fall, if they're not as big as Signature, that they're not so big that 30 banks will get together and recapitalize them, right? Because they're not systemically important. That what we're going to see is this slow drip, drip, drip of smaller banks failing. How do you feel about that? I feel like that's inevitable. Uh, that could that could happen. Interesting to you know contrast what where we've been so far with. Uh, as we were mentioning, the uh, financial crisis from, you know, 2007 to 11 or 12. Back then, what started out small became, you know, much bigger over time. So it started out as an overshooting in um, real estate lending and activity, construction activity, uh, both residential and commercial prices peaked and then started to decline. And then that was eroding capital bases for all sorts of banks. And back then, it was really the small banks that showed up first as, as a problem. At the time, the biggest bank that had failed prior to Lehman and then Washington Mutual, the biggest bank that had failed back then was IndyMac, uh, a $30 billion bank that went down in the summer of uh, 2008, so a little bit before um, Lehman. That was definitely a like credit-driven capital erosion that then, in IndyMac's case, it led to a run on the bank and the regulators had to step in. But prior to now, that would be your classic pattern to a, a bank failure. But now, yeah, that we've seen, you know, the second and third largest bank failures uh, occur in a short time frame, and for vaguely similar but ultimately different reasons than, you know, credit uh, quality. A little bit similar if you if you count the losses that uh, the Silicon Valley Bank was sitting on top of, but all being uh, deposit driven. So a long way of saying, man, is for something like that to hit the smaller bank sector, you'd either have to see a similar capital hit from, for example, you know, the securities portfolio that drove uh, Silicon Valley down, 
uh, or some actual credit quality you know problems emerging right now we're not quite at that point we're at what may be the beginning of a cascade um, we might want to talk a little bit about commercial real estate and the outlook for commercial real estate in the new context but yeah i agree with you on the on the point that it's easy to get lulled into the sense of banks have banded together they've plugged a hole stock prices are are coming back and it's like uh, problem solved i think from what we've seen in the last you know week uh, it's not problem solved, uh, and it won't be for for quite a while. Matt, what percentage of deposits would have to leave a bank for it to become a problem? Right, we said a second ago that ninety percent of signatures uninsured deposits, ninety percent of signatures deposits were uninsured. What percentage of a bank's deposits would have to leave for it to start becoming problematic? Is it five percent or is it fifty percent? I think in the case of Signature, didn't they have a single day where $42 billion was taken out by depositors? By the way, that would have been about 50% of Signature's deposits. Yeah, I think I think a 5% figure, uh, you know, it's a big one-day move, but I don't, that's probably not life-threatening. But if you get up above, you know, 20 25% in a single day, then you're probably in panic mode for the regulators. So the question everyone's asking, Matt, and I know you've done some number crunching on this, right? The the contagion to other banks is the question. And obviously, uh, our listeners and clients are mostly concerned with commercial real estate. So you've you've done some, uh, some math on uh, what's going on with some of the regional banks. Yeah, so in terms of contagion, I think what we're seeing going on right now and, and what, certainly what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank was a very quick feedback loop from mounting concerns over whatever the issue is, but ultimately uh, concerns about getting your money back out of the bank, uh, then you know leading to a panic and a and a run on the bank. Right now, we're seeing that expressed, I think, in the form of stock market moves. So very volatile stock prices, huge swings up one day and down the next day as whatever the factor from the day before now seems remote and now there's a, a fresh uh, fresh reason for concern with the extra move to shore up first republic that might help calm things down but it's not not just first republic i mean they've uh, their stock's been battered the most but there are plenty of other banks that have suffered you know 30 40 50 percent price declines and that puts a lot of pressure not directly on the bank but it's more of a perception of riskiness. And then at that point, if depositors uh, really do uh, get nervous and feel like they have to pull their money out on MOS, then you know that's that's going to trigger the same sort of regulatory response where the regulators feel like they have to move in and take the bank over. That would be the kind of contagion worry. I don't think that the regional banks, anyhow, they aren't so exposed to each other in that sense, but it's more a common feature of reliance on on deposits and the potential for um, some capital hits from their securities portfolio in the form of uh, what are currently unrealized losses on their securities that um, if they're forced to sell like Silicon Valley was, would turn into real losses. In terms of real estate, the um, the regional banks, we took a look at 17 of the regional banks that have been uh, most in the news and you know suffered uh, in the stock market over the last week. Not surprisingly, they're pretty meaningful to real estate. Uh, they have collectively, they have over 300 billion of uh, commercial real estate debt on their books. For those banks, that amounts to about 12% of their assets. So it's a pretty meaningful chunk of their asset base collectively, uh, some higher, some lower. Uh, that compares, by the way, to a similar figure of about 375 billion for the top four banks uh, in terms of exposure to commercial real estate. So collectively, you could say those uh, 17 banks, regional banks that have been in the crosshairs lately, uh, collectively, they play a kind of similar role within the commercial real estate debt market as just the largest uh, four banks. With uh, either one, they're about 11, 12, 13% of the total bank real estate debt outstanding. Okay, let's pivot now a little bit more to that commercial real estate 
topic that you started talking about, Matt, because there's three things going on in my estimation that are squeezing commercial real estate all at the same time. On the first side, the CMBS market has really, really dried up here. And it was problematic before the last 10 days. And what we've seen in the last 10 days is the increase in volatility in risk premiums and in CMBX has made it even harder to write a loan on the CMBS desk, right? So CMBS will not be a safety valve. It doesn't appear right now. And for those that are wondering what I'm talking about, every time a CMBS lender makes a loan, what they do immediately is they hedge that loan against both interest rate risk, so they buy treasury futures, and they also hedge it against credit risk by buying CMBX hedges. And what they're trying to do is lock in their profit. But what has happened over the last 10 days is with treasuries moving sometimes 40 or 50 basis points within a eight hours window and with CMBX spreads blowing out because credit risk is picking up, there's no way to confidently hedge your lending in CMBS right now. And accordingly, that safety valve, right, whatever the slack that might have picked up as treasuries, the 10-year treasury has gone from 4% down back to 3.4% is offset by the volatility. So that's out. The second part of it, which is out, is that, and this is my theory, I'll let Matt react to this, is that banks, because of this liquidity pressure, are now squirreling deposits away right now. They're in no mood to be putting more risk on their balance sheet, whether it's in the form of warehouse lending or true balance sheet loans. And that window of liquidity for commercial real estate borrowers is gone. And for all of these uh, entities, you rely on the trust of your counterparty to write these hedges and to act as trading partners, whether it's buying your securities, hedging against them. And when trust is lost in a, in a firm like Credit Suisse, you have more uncertainty, right? People are less willing to lend, right? Just across the board, outside of, of commercial real estate. And with those three headwinds, it's hard to imagine that the flow of funds in commercial real estate will be sustainable as it was even at the slow trickle it was in the last two months for the foreseeable future. I tend to agree. And if you add to that equation, the fact that commercial banks had an outsized role in commercial real estate last year. So they actually were picking up a lot of market share last year while other lenders were more on the sidelines. You mentioned CMBS. Uh, the agencies were out there as well, but not as heavily as they had been the previous couple of years. So, you know, life company lending too. So the banks uh, in a big way stepped in to make uh, 2022 a, a big year for commercial real estate overall. Uh, by our estimates, uh, record amounts of loan originations last year, banks making up about 60% of that versus a more normal share that's the last few years, it's been more like a little under 50%. So the banks really picked up a lot of market share last year. Explosive growth in 2022, by our estimates, bank lending itself grew by something like 45% versus 2021. So great big year for bank lending in um, 2022. And I do definitely agree with you that uh, right now it's going to be be a very risk-off atmosphere um, in general, you know, lending on real estate. There are already concerns about real estate looking along in the tooth. Valuations have, uh, there's different measures are starting to show that uh, real estate values may be declining. Um, so if you if you pile on those impacts, I think there's gonna be less, less money available this year than uh, there has been. And just to give some context there, we actually pulled some of our data to kind of give an indication of what issuances look like. So if you look at total, you know, CMBS issuance, Q1 of 22 as compared to Q1 of 23, so year-over-year -year comparison, 
Uh, we can break it out by conduit, SASB, large loan. But if you just look at raw totals, total issuance in Q1 of 22 is around 27 and a half billion. Total issuance of Q1 23, we're sitting today at about 4.9 billion. So significant reduction in overall issuance. And I think for all the points you raised, Manus, there's no uptick in that coming. I mean, if if you're looking to finance new construction today, I think you're going to have a really hard time finding a lender with an appetite for new construction. It's riskiest by definition. With everything that's happened in the last 10 days, I think it's going to be pencils down for most lenders. You know, Matt, you brought up some interesting points on the commercial mortgage side or commercial lender side that picked up some of the slack from the GSEs and others. You know, we haven't even talked about any of the non-bank lenders and some of these other fringe unregulated lenders that have picked up a huge number of uh, origination volume over the last couple of years and where they sit. And I think, you know, the reality is none of the economic stuff that we would normally have talked about at this point in the pod has gone away. So like we're, we're 10 days, you know, into this cycle. And if you look at inflation, I mean, inflation, when we got the numbers uh, last for a 6%, up about four tenths of a percent in February. The jobs report was, you know, on fire. I, I put a tweet out to Martha and Haley last week saying, are, are we going to talk about the jobs report? Because that was at the time headline worthy. And at this point it's buried so far below everything else that you wouldn't even think about it. So, you know, the Fed's not out of the woods in the sense that like, okay, we stabilized the banking system. That's great. What's going to happen broader, you know, to tame inflation. And I think this asset valuation you know, we're just in the infancy of that. Like there has been significant declines in property values. It's just math. If if you take interest rates at three and they go to seven at the same NOI, the value is going to be significantly less because your cost of capital is dramatically higher. And I don't think banks are really prepared for that. I mean, at this point, we haven't had that discussion up until, you know, this this week with these bank failures. But if you look at these refinances that we've talked about, now for lenders, they're in a very different position than they were two weeks ago when they're talking about trying to recapitalize or refinance some of these office assets or some of these other assets. And especially if some of these, you know, we saw some of these larger players, you know, indicate they're going to give office buildings back and other things. And those were kind of one-off scenarios. I think every single one of those now becomes a much bigger story at each of those banks that have those loans because of everything else that we've talked about today. So, you know, I'm not entirely convinced at this point that, you know, it's great that we've got the bank situation stabilized, but I think it's still super rocky. I think issuance is going to be zero relative. I think uh, value decline is very early in the game. And I think that inflation is still very real and they're going to have to do some things to address that. And I think if you add those three things together, this could very easily turn into a pretty long slog in terms of overall impact to the CRE landscape and the lending landscape broadly. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is this potential to be this whirlpool that just keeps sucking us down and sucking us down and sucking us down. And that whirlpool, in my estimation, looks like this. I don't think we're done by any way, shape, or form in the deposit pullout, right? Uh, I talk to people that have nothing to do with commercial real estate, nothing to do with lending, borrowing, they're just business owners. And they're all spending this week trying to figure out how do I diversify my 3 billion, not my 3 billion, my 3 million or $30 million operating pool to keep my company going, right? How do I make sure that I don't lose this money? So I think that goes on for a long time. That's step one. Step two is all these companies that are watching this happen at all these banks, I should say, not the companies themselves, say, okay, I've lost 2% of my deposit base. I got to go sell assets. The more assets that hit the market, the more supply there is, the more prices drop. The lower the prices drop, the bigger those losses are. The bigger those losses are, the bigger the erosion of their equity. The bigger the erosion of their equity, right? The more concern there is, right? And then there's, there's a whole nother cycle of, more deposits walk out the door. And not everybody's first republic. Not everybody is going to have done of size for 30 banks to get together and recapitalize you, right? And at the same time, enough people, even if you are strong and not having deposit flight, you're not making loans because you're being awfully careful 
And therefore, the guy that has to refinance his loan or the guy that wants to buy new property has zero or one bidder for his loan. It's great for the guy who can make loans now, right? You're no longer a price taker. You're a price maker in terms of the loan rate you can make. But I think for everybody else, including the would-be borrower, it's tough sledding. And I think the only guy who wins here, honestly, is the IO holder, right? We thought that extend and pretend was going to be a big problem in 2023. Now it could become a massive problem, right? Even guys with really good DSCR and low leverage might find no appetite for refinancing, right? And, and that is the real bear case for me for, for commercial real estate. Yeah, and again, I think that goes back to the whole liquidity issue. And I, I do feel like this is far from over. There's going to be a, a lot more slogging ahead. I think the regulators, uh, the Fed in particular, is going to be at great pains to support liquidity within the market. They really face a big conundrum with uh, with interest rates at the moment. If inflation wasn't an issue, you have a clear-cut case for cutting rates uh, dramatically. Obviously, inflation has been a big problem. So they're they're really between a rock and a hard place at the moment. Man, as you mentioned, deposit insurance, I think that's going to be a topic of review. Uh, clearly, the deposit insurance that's in place was designed for you know retail depositors, um, small balances, but we're finding that you know the whole payment system is subject to flight risk. So uh, so that's a that's a problem. Regulatory pressures are going to get a lot higher for banks in the near and medium term. Uh, I don't know whether there will be fresh legislation coming out of this, but there definitely uh, there's going to be a lot of um, what analysis of what went wrong, what what did we do, what didn't we do, what should we have done, uh, all from the regulatory side. One of the things that's been a concern is many of these banks are sitting on unrealized losses on their fixed income assets. You've done a little bit of uh, assessment of that. Yeah, and we're still we're still doing work on this to really get to the bottom of it. But um, but if you do the math on Silicon Valley Bank, they were sitting on uh, losses uh, to the tune of 17 billion in their securities portfolio, mainly in what they were calling hold to maturity securities. So um, the accounting rules allow them to just report on that, but not actually have to um, incur a loss. And their their thought process was, well, we can just ride this out and eventually we'll get paid back in 10 years when these things mature. That would have been fine, except that, you know, they didn't have 10 years on the clock. They had, they didn't even have 10 hours, you know, in the end. So uh, we have done the anal similar analysis for, um, uh, for a lot of banks. We don't see that any other um, banks would be negatively capitalized like Silicon Valley uh, Bank would have been, but definitely a hit. Actually, if you combine that analysis with a reliance on deposits, so we've been talking about deposits and potential flightiness of deposits. If you combine those two, uh, it looks like you can explain about half of the uh, share price declines that, that all the banks have um, experienced in the last week. So for the the regional banks that are um, the share prices are down anywhere from 20 to 75, 80 percent, and on through to the large banks that are down in the you know five to 10 percent range. Uh, across all those banks, you can you can explain half of that share price decline just with those two measures, with the um, equity impact of having to take those losses right away, um, and then um, and then the reliance on deposits. But we'll be putting out some more research on that. It's interesting and not surprising uh, that there's been some talk about capital raising now uh, for banks. I fully expect that we'll see some banks raising capital. The hard part of that right now is that, like Silicon Valley, if you announce that you want to go raise capital, you're going to be shot in the stock market. So they have to tread very cautiously as far as that goes. But I do expect that the regulators are probably doing the same math that we are and probably coming to the same conclusion that several banks should go raise capital just to really stave off any additional pressure on their share price. So Matt, there were about 15 to 17 banks that were really under the gun this week 
in terms of their share prices down anywhere from 20 to to 60%. And they were big names. Zion's First Republic, we've talked about before, Western Alliance, Comerica, Truist, Sonovis, Fifth Third, and, and so forth, like a lot of names. And we've been very circumspect. We're not looking to set any of these banks on fire or add fuel to the fire already. You've already said that you know, the, the share price sell-off was more than twice you thought the impact should have been given their mark-to-market losses for these banks. But can you, can you put into perspective among the 15 to 20 banks that are in that category, what percentage in terms of hits to their equity would their mark-to-market losses be? Is it one or 2% or is it bigger than that? Like, what are we, give us an order of magnitude. It's more significant than that, quite a lot more. Um, so across, across that whole uh, group of banks, if again, uh, if you take that hit uh, to their equity, these are unrealized, currently unrealized securities losses. If they did realize that those, by our calculations, it would amount to an impact for the group of about 40% reduction in their equity. And at the individual bank level, it would range from about a 20% impact on up to about an 80% impact, depending on the bank. Holy smokes, that's staggering. It is. I think you'll see that uh, in a certain sense across the banking spectrum from even larger banks, not quite as um, as hefty for the larger banks, but uh, but still pretty, you know, a meaningful number, let's put it that way. Ironically, very small banks probably don't have a whole lot of securities. So the very small banks tend to be almost 100% loan oriented in terms of, you know, their asset base. But the larger the bank, actually the high, generally the higher proportion of securities within the mix, uh, for obvious reasons, securities are considered high quality typically, and they're also considered typically quite liquid. And they would be liquid. The only problem is if the banks sell, then they're gonna take a loss. Lonnie, I think it's time for you and Martha to get a fund together, right? It's time <laughs> for somebody with fresh powder to step in. There's probably going to be opportunity galore for 12 to 15% yields on triple B minus CMBS. You guys are, you guys can uh, sniff out good credit from bad, can't you? At the end of this week, like, I don't know which way is up, it seems like, you know, it's, I think we've, we've wit- wit- witnessed how quickly things change when they change. Everything works until it doesn't. And when it stops, then it's amazing how quickly, you know, all of these other things start to be exposed. And to your point, man, is there's a lot of opportunity that probably will come for this for very specific type of investors. Those that have listened to us for a while, no, I'm I'm pretty optimistic. I'm always smiling and kind of upbeat. But I think broadly here, I'm I'm kind of a pessimist in the sense that if you look at the debt ceiling, if you look at inflation, if you look at value asset, you know, declines, et cetera, like I Things it's a really tough cycle for us to get out of. And I, I just don't know if I look out for my kids in the next 20 years or so, like there's not a whole lot of things screaming at me that this is a great place. You know, there's just some real challenges, I think, as a country we're going to have to deal with. I did want to highlight, and, and I'll kick it over to you, Manus. We've spent a lot of time talking about the banks. We've spent a lot of time talking about the top 15 or 17 in terms of, of moves this last week. But to consolidate this into something that's more digestible and easier for our listeners and TREP users and readers to understand as we put together a banking news tracker that we're going to be putting out, banking news monitor, if you will, basically where we're tracking all of the the news around Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and we've compiled all of our resources into what we're calling a one-stop shop for market participants to follow the coverage. So that will be something that comes out of this that for those interested, we're going to consolidate things and make it uh, very easy for you to get access to what we know in real time uh, or close to real time so that it's easy for you to make sense of some of the topics that we've talked about today and some of the you know news that breaks in the, in the coming weeks, which we expect will probably happen. So there will not be a Lonmar fund. You're on your own, Martha, if you're going to raise some money. <laughs> or is it Marlon? Right, Marlon? One or the other. Be yeah, definitely Mar- yeah, definitely Marlon. I think we'd go with Marlon. I think Martha's probably in trying to get all of her uh, monies into uh, different different banks so she can be insured at this point. That's probably a pretty uh, pretty large undertaking for her. There's no problem. <laughs> no danger there. You know, we didn't even uh, cover 
some of the property sector news that uh, that we had, and we had a ton of news flashes, trading alerts, and other not so great news um, in a number of property sectors. So let's um, mention a couple of them, Manus, before we uh, move on to uh, the shout outs, because I think there's a couple worthy of noting. Yes, just as a, a quick parenthetical, we've been doing a lot more, there's been a lot more news happening recently, and we're putting in a lot more stuff intraday than ever before, just because the market has been so uh, busy. So hopefully our clients are enjoying the midday updates we've been putting out there. A couple of quick ones. Blackstone sent a Las Vegas office loan to special servicing. Um, it's a $325 million loan. It's called the Hughes Center Las Vegas. Um, it backs a 2018 single asset deal. And it seems like from the nature of the special servicer comments that Blackstone is not looking to uh, put any money into this. Yeah, just to follow up on that uh, story, Manus, Jonathan Gray, you know, the COO at uh, Blackstone, was basically trying to instill some confidence that Blackstone was ahead of the curve a little bit on some of these, you know, office devaluations. And his quote was, we've written down the equity value of traditional U.S. office assets dramatically since 2018. And fortunately, such assets represent only 2% of our global real estate portfolio versus approximately 50% 15 years ago. So I think the narrative they're trying to get out there is that we understand some of these are going to be lost leaders for us. We've diversified. We've written down our office exposure. You know, everything's okay over here. To your point, though, $325 million uh, property on the loan side is still a big deal. Um, and this one's a little bit unique in the way it's structured. Smaller tenants on a relative basis, 40,000 square foot or less. There's some nuance here, but it, it was interesting to see his position as it pertains to this particular asset in their portfolio more broadly. What I hear out of that Blackstone comment is the losses have already been taken and you as a Blackstone shareholder are okay. There's no surprises out there. But as a CRE guy, that really scares me because this thing was once worth $500 million. And now basically they're saying 175 million in equity has been erased for something that is cash flow positive. This is not like a 0.90x DSCR. This is well above 1.0x. And they're telling us now that they've been writing it down for the last two years. That's not a bullish sign in any way, shape, or form for the uh, commercial real estate market. Going to some other stories quickly, this was before the European banks bailed out Credit Suites. We talked about 11 Madison. This backs a lot of CMBS debt and a lot of CMBS loans. Credit Suisse has 700,000 square feet at 11 Madison in um, kind of Midtown South, Gramercy Park, um, part of Manhattan. That's a loan to watch for us. We put out a piece talking about loans to watch when the bank stocks were selling off. Uh, many of those 17 banks before have huge office spaces in places like Columbus, Dallas, Cleveland, Manhattan, San Francisco. Um, if any of these banks come back to have problems, you know, shedding that office space may be something that uh, becomes a problem down the road. Uh, elsewhere in Chicago, this was a bank problem a few years ago that uh, just keeps on popping up. 135 South LaSalle, Bank of America left there a couple of years ago. The value was dropped from $330 million to $130 million in 2022. This month, the value was dropped to just $90 million. It is now negative equity for that $100 million 2015 CMBS loans. That is uh, a couple of the office stories we've watched this week. A couple of programming notes. We are going to, we, by we, I mean the podcast team is going to be at the ICSC Continuing Education event in Detroit. So that's coming up. If, uh, if you are in that area and think you're interested in attending, let us know and we'll give you the information for that. And Lonnie already mentioned some of the bank news that we're, we're publishing. Matt is uh, one of the people that actually does that analysis. So if you're interested in getting more, I'm sure we're going to have Matt on the pod again soon. Let us know and we'll make sure you're on the list. And our Market Pulse webinar where Matt and Stephen Bushbaum and Lonnie are going to talk about specifically 
in more detail what's happening with the bank. They'll have a number of data points to cover there. Shout outs. Travis L. had some comments to us. Bob Y. was interested in our life comps, which is our life insurance mortgages. So we sent them a report. Lisa Abramowitz, who's a known person in the industry and was interested in some of our analysis around Signature Bank. Joe Kay made a YouTube video highlighting our latest delinquency and special servicing data. Tony and Watson, our friends, were checking in about some of the market news lately. Oz reached out to us similarly on some questions. UDG sent Haley a LinkedIn message. I love your team show. I listen every week. Hunter J enjoys and listens a ton. JT said Lonnie was talking his book, but he's 100% correct. He's a listener and liked what we put out. Tons of valuable information. Give him a listen. Shlomo C tweeted, hey, Trepwire and Manus, what's up with no Twitter? I think he was talking about when we were uh, mentioning Toro mascot. He's, I guess, I think he went there. He says there is no mascot, if you can believe that. So maybe we ought to get them one. Ben P tweeted at us. We need a Twitter spaces ASAP. Can't wait for the podcast. TBH said on Twitter, we need an emergency pod and Deidre W huge fan of the podcast. And it is the beginning of March Madness, not because of what's been happening in the market news, but because of college basketball. Manis, what's your pick? I had to go with Houston. They were, you know, statistically, when you look at all the metrics year over year, I thought that uh, it was a no-brainer that it would be Houston. We'll see how it goes with these next couple of days. But I have to agree with you that I thought March Madness began on previous Friday with the Silicon Valley Bank and uh, the number of texts I was getting, emails, Twitter, reach outs, LinkedIn, and so forth was, was kind of crazy. And I would um, restate that a lot of this came from people that are not in CRE. There was real panic uh, among people of all stripes about was their money safe and um, I hope that we uh, can avoid the worst of it. I am a little bit in Lonnie's camp. I'm concerned that this may linger for a while. Uh, as Lonnie is, I am a glass half full guy, but I'm not sure we've seen the end of the bank liquidity story that has played out over the last six days. And we'll have to see. With that, we'll close. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Haley Keene. And join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or a comment, send your email to podcast at trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right. <laughs>